to be with you guys this morning. If you don't know me, my name is Ben Rain. I am pastor of senior high and young adults. Uh, I'm just thrilled to be able to be with you guys this morning. God has given me um, a message for us today. The, the passage was prescribed, but I trust that it is for each one of us. So I want to pray for us. I want to ask that God would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to hear what his word has to say. Because today, it's, it's, it's a big one. It's a doozy. So will you join with me? Father, we love you. God, we know that wherever two or three are gathered, there you are as well. And so we invite you, we celebrate you, we welcome you. And we say, have your way and your, your place in our hearts, in our lives, and in our body. We ask, Father, for just a, a drenching of your love this morning. The words that come from my mouth, may they not be of me, but may they be of you. So God, glorify yourself in this place, we pray. Amen. When it comes to how we view ourselves, we all have very different perspectives. Some of us can have a perspective of our self-worth as being more downtrodden, a feeling as if we're never good enough, always striving but never achieving, becoming perpetually stuck in a cycle of do good, be better. The danger with this perspective is that it leaves us with what I deem an Eeyore-like syndrome. It's a heart attitude where we're always striving and yet never succeeding, becoming trapped in and becoming trapped in a sea of perceived expectations that are unimaginably out of our reach for humanity. And yet this mindset can be so incredibly easy to fall into. And unfortunately, it can even be validated by other well-intentioned people. Passages such as Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12 can make it at times even more difficult. Some translations read it like this. There is none who is righteous. There's not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Now, if this is coupled with other passages of the New and Old Testament, passages like 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, which says, Be holy, for I am holy. Be, be perfect for I am perfect. That can be really confusing. Now, the word of God is true, and we know that it is true. But it's no wonder Eeyore is so pervasive in our churches when we are trying to do it and attain it ourselves. It is literally impossible to please God with my own human merit. Yet there is still another type of person. Having grown up in rural Saskatchewan and then later moving to the city, from a young age, I saw men and women abuse positions of power and leadership. Whether it was the long-standing family in town, the closest friend to the pastor, or the largest financial donor, there is a sense of expectancy that because I have given because of my status, you need to listen to me. Though none of these things are wrong in and of themselves, 
It's the heart attitude of this person, either known or unknown, that can be incredibly dangerous. Pride runs freely and infects everyone and everything around them. There is little self-awareness or awareness of others, for that matter. And no wrong can be done by this person. Isn't this what happened to King Saul? King Saul, a man who started out with honorable intentions, anointed by God, counted among those who prophesied, king of Israel. And yet, Saul became victim to himself. He placed his humanity, his title, his worth above his God-given identity. He forgot who he was. For much of my life, I fell into the first category. I loved life and I loved God, but I felt trapped in a cycle of continually trying to please God. Always striving and never achieving. The unfortunate thing is that for over 20 years, there was a tug-of-war-like battle that took place within me. I was left feeling deflated. Deflated, not deflated. (laughs) I'm making new words today. I thought to myself, surely God can't actually love me. Not like the way he loves other people. His love, his tenderness, his care, it's for them, it's not for me. I thought that if I changed my body, I would be loved more by him. I would be loved more by others. What about my attitude? What about my friends? My level of knowledge? Maybe if I knew more about God, he would love me. I even formulated experiences that mimicked a life-changing encounter with God. And still nothing worked. This past fall, my family and I, we had a lot going on. We just had our third child, our son, Toby. We moved to Airdrie to start my job here at the church. It was a very busy time of life. Shortly after, I had an incredibly profound moment, leaving a coffee shop with a young adult. Honestly, I was walking back to my car, and I was thinking about what my family was going to do that particular night. It was then that I heard God say, as clear as day, Ben, you need to stop living in your analysis. This was an incredible hearing from God that actually thrust me into a personal journey of refreshment and communion with the Father, all while laying a fresh foundation for the biblical truths that I already knew. You see, for the longest time, I think I lived my faith out from a position of what I knew about God. And though knowing about God isn't a bad thing, It's actually needed very much. There is a shift in my understanding, and my faith has grown in leaps and bounds because of what God knows about me. I've learned, rather, I'm learning that the two actually need to go hand in hand. In order to understand my faith, I need to discover who God is, how he made me, for what reason. I need to understand and learn how God sees me. At its root, it's a conversation about identity. I work with youth often, and I think identity is something that is not only hitting our youth and young people, it's hitting our adults too. So let's not be ignorant of that. 
But in working with youth, one of the things I say often is in, in order to know who we are, we need to know whose we are. And that is exactly what I hope that we will be able to unpack in our passage today. So if you have a Bible or an app, turn with me to Psalm 139. The psalmist David says this, O Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. And there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you already know it altogether. You've hedged me behind and before and you've laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, there you are. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. And your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness does not hide from you, but the night shines as if it was the day, and the darkness and the light, are, they're both alike to you, for you form my inwardmost parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. And that my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being unformed. And in your books they were written, the days that fashioned me, for when as there were none of them. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men. For they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them as my enemies. Now search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me to the life everlasting. Now, this psalm is absolutely incredible. And while we could spend a number of weeks dissecting it, we just don't really have that time right now. So I've broken this passage down into four main principles. And we can't, we couldn't, and we should not miss what the psalmist is saying here. We don't want to miss what the psalmist is telling us because it could actually change our lives. It actually changes the way we view ourselves. It changes the way that we view others. It changes our relationship with our spouse or our significant other. It changes the way that we parent. It changes the way that we approach the Father. So for the next 20 minutes or so, let's perk up and listen, okay? Do whatever you have to do to stay with me, because we're diving deep and we're going in fast, okay? To get us started, I want to ask you a really important question. How are you known? It may seem like a simple question at first, but there's actually a lot of complexities to it. 
There's a lot of different ways that we define ourselves. Some define themselves by a job or a position. Maybe it's a status. Maybe it's a family name that you were born into. If I'm here at the church and I meet you for the very first time, I likely will extend my hand and I'll say, good morning, I'm Pastor Ben. Now, being a pastor doesn't define me, but it is a way that I'm known. If I go to someone's house and ring the doorbell and the door opens and they're like, Ben, and they greet me with a big bear hug, it's likely a friend or my dad. <laughs> We're known in, in different ways, and yet still, if someone crawls up on my lap and starts rubbing my face and tells me that I better start shaving, I'm hoping that it's one of four people, either one of my three children or my wife. But even better is being known by God. Every person has God's undivided time, his undivided attention, and his undivided affection. He's coming after you. Verses 1 to 3 of Psalm 139 says, O Lord, you have searched me, you have known me, you, you know my sitting and my rising up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You comprehend my path and my lying down. Now, for some, the idea of knowing God, or for some, the idea of God knowing our every breath, our every moment, our every thought, our every word is actually quite scary. Maybe the thought of, oh crap, what is he thinking of me now? But that might actually reveal a deeper heart issue, a soul issue, if you will, of the ability to truly accept the Father's love. Maybe it's a spirit of religiosity, of understanding and accepting the love of the Father. If that's you today, and, and I believe that if you have that thought, yeah, that's me, then, then please do the hard work, okay? I challenge you now and throughout the rest of the message to do the hard work of seeing yourself the way God sees you in order to do what we must to allow the love of the Father to penetrate our hearts, to penetrate the entirety of lives, including our thought life, because you're worth it. Right from the get-go, David grabs the reader's attention. He pulls us into this intimate you-and-me relationship. He lays the foundation of how God knows us intimately and actually desires to be intimately known as well. People may know things about me as Pastor Ben, but that doesn't mean that they know me intimately. You see, God's omniscience his ability to know everything, it, it's not logically learned. It's not logically learned. It's actually experiential. If I sit down for coffee with someone and share about my day and laugh about the natural occurrences, maybe my son smeared poo on the wall or, you know, what, whatever it might be, maybe they know that I got in a car accident because of a grasshopper. But 
that doesn't equate to a deep intimacy. That's just knowledge. Intimacy comes with intentional time, with intentional purpose, with the vulnerability of all different forms of emotion. Verse 5 and 6 says, wrong page, Uh, 5 and 6, you've heads behind me and before me. You've laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. David is thrust into a position of experiencing the knowledge of God. Through the, the experiencing God's knowledge of him, of David, through his faithfulness, through God's goodness, through God's provision, through his rebuke and his tenderness throughout the entirety of his life. Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36 says, Oh, the riches, the deep riches of both of wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who can become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and shall it be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. You see, his knowledge of us, God's knowledge of us is far beyond our understanding. Now, some of you might be sitting back and saying, yeah, but Pastor Ben, you don't know me. You don't know what I've done. It's very true. But I would still rebuttal that. You don't know yourself either, at least not to the degree that God has actually created you to be. Not to the degree that the Father has instilled his love in you. Some of you are aware that um, my family and I, we've been searching for a dog to bring into our house. Now, I'm proud to say that at the beginning of June, we were able to find and adopt an eight-year-old mini Labradoodle whose name is Farley. Farley is incredibly cute. Uh, He is one of the cutest curly-haired pooches that I know. He's fantastic for our family, but Farley, just like any other dog, has some quirks. Farley doesn't bark too much. He doesn't run away down the street, or he doesn't just leave his toys out everywhere, everywhere around the house. Instead, he has become absolutely infatuated with my wife. Like, honestly, it's sometimes even hard to get close to her without Farley cutting in front of you, knocking a child over to sit at her feet. It's kind of obnoxious. There's a major place of contention between our dog and our one-year-old who are constantly vying for my wife's attention. I find it quite funny, but Larissa, not so much. There's times that she is absolutely overwhelmed with his sheer presence. He seemingly is always there. Now, in a similar manner, this is what David is expressing in verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, there you are. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not crazy. I know my dog cannot ascend to heaven and then descend to hell. But what I'm talking about here is a shared, unrelenting pursuit. 
It doesn't matter whether you rise to your position as a son or a daughter. You have it. It's yours to take. Whether you're intentionally living in his presence or if you choose to run from God, purposefully disengaging from him and his other children, the church. Whether you're hiding in darkness or choosing sin over his presence, he is still with you. You see, we often associate heaven as the place where God resides and dwells. And hell as the place where Satan resides. And this is, this is true, but I think unintentionally, I think we fool ourselves into thinking that God actually has no power over hell. And what David is saying here in verse 8 is, If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. Just because God chooses not chooses to not reside there does not mean he does not have power over that place. Because, ladies and gentlemen, our God is big. Our God is powerful. He can come and go as he pleases. And he is relentlessly pursuing you. His position is and continues to be one of a father who eagerly seeks to be with his children. Involved in their lives, conversing with them as they rise in the morning, as they rest in the evening. Is this not the picture that we see of God with Adam and Eve when God walks with Adam and Eve? He's he's chasing after them. Where did you go? Why is God asking, Adam, where are you? God's all-knowing. He knows, but he is intentionally coming after you. God is not a distant God. He is a God who is close. Jeremiah 23, 23 to 24 says, Am I not a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God far off? Can anyone hide out in a corner where I can't see him, says the Lord? Am I not present everywhere, whether seen or unseen, says the Lord? He's with you on those hilltops and in those valleys. He is unrelentlessly pursuing you. Are you doing the same thing? To most of us, the name Betty Henson probably means very little, if anything at all. You see, Betty was a housewife. Uh, She she was a stay-at-home mom. She looked after her children and and took care of her house in the 1940s. Her husband was a a pretty normal man. He worked for the Department of Agriculture in the American Midwest. One day in 1961, Betty piled up all the old clothes in the house, and along with her son Jim, they got in the family station wagon to take the clothes down to their local Salvation Army. In the car, her 15-year-old son saw this bright green, fuzzy, knee-length coat. And he began to ask his mom for this coat. Mom, can I keep it? Can I have it? Mom, can I have it? No, she said. Why would you need this hideous, ugly thing? It's out of fashion. It's out of style. Betty told her son, Jim, that he had no reason for a coat like that. It was hideous. By the time Betty and her son got to the Salvation Army, in one interview, Betty tells us how... um, how determined her son was. Now, whether it was determination or just the nagging voice of a child, we really don't know. 
but she agreed to allow her son to keep his coat. After getting home, her son rushes down into the basement and hunkers away, missing supper um, and spending the night away with this ugly green coat. His mother is wondering, what is going on? To her surprise, he excitedly comes out of the basement with a puppet, his newest creation. This is something we now lovingly know as Kermit the Frog. Betty later said in an interview that this was a side of her son that she had never seen before, a creative side that she desperately desired to continue to inspire. So from that day on, Betty was sure to ask her son whether or not he, Jim Henson, wanted the family's old clothes prior to giving them all away. So out of torn clothes and rags, Jim Henson created some of the most recognized and endeared puppets. Kermit the Frog, Rolf the Dog, Miss Piggy, Yoda, and my personal favorite, the Swedish Chef. <laughs> now, if a 15-year-old boy can drum up and create a magical world out of old clothes and make puppeteering actually cool, how much more can God and does God want to use you for his purposes? Because you're not old. You're not thrown away. If that's the thought going through your mind, we need to kill it. Because that's not from God. He wouldn't have sent his son for old, dirty rags that he just wanted to dispose of. He wanted to redeem it. He wanted to restore it. Let's look at verses 13 to 15 of Psalm 31. Or 31.9, sorry. 139, wow. Uh, For you formed my inwards parts, and you covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. The image in this passage is absolutely incredible. David comes out of this narrative asking, where can I hide from you, God? To the deepest realization that God has always been with him, even acknowledging his unformed body in his mother's womb. Now, we have some pretty amazing technology nowadays that allows us to monitor and look and see how a baby is forming and developing, but that's not what this is saying. Unformed, there, there was nothing, and yet I saw you. I saw you. That's the heart of the Father. If that's not enough, David poetically draws his readers back to the creation story. You see, at the end of verse 15, he says, I was made in secret, and I was skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. It would be easy to just pass this by as as poetic narrative, but what David is actually drawing our eye to is the fact that his mother, his mother's mother, and his mother's mother's mother all came from the exact same place. The creation story tells us of how God formed man out of the dust and the dirt of the ground and breathed life into them. David, in many ways, 
isn't just talking about the lowest part of his mother's womb. It's exponentially blowing our minds to the point of God's knowledge of us. That at the beginning of creation, at the formation of humanity, God had us in mind. Because David draws our attention to creation, it's actually important to linger there and not bypass too quickly. As I was studying, my mind had had taken me to Genesis chapter 1. Verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our own image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over all of the cattle, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. Now, this is absolutely crazy. This is absolutely ridiculous. And it's so important, and yet we bypass it. We may remember it, or maybe we skim over it, or maybe we just don't allow for the time to let it sink in. But the very first chapter of God's word to his people, God introduces this idea of amago dei. What is that, some of you might ask? Simply put, it is the image of God. Now stick with me for a minute. You are made in God's image, not by accident. There's no accidents with God. You are actually made in his image. When he set out to create the world and everything in it, he actually had you in mind. He said to himself, oh, I am good. I'm good. And I want my creation to bear my goodness too. And we see that as as God walks through the creation story and he makes the heavens and the earth, and he says, oh, it's good. And he creates everything, all the animals in the sea and on the land, and he says, oh, it's good. And then he comes to you. And he says, ah. It's very good. Why? It's not just good because I took some dust and breathed life. It's good because it is my image. This thing called humanity, mankind, male and female. It's very good because I'm putting my image on my people. So at the beginning of time, God saw your unformed body, your frame prior to its physical creation and said, yeah. This one is going to be so good. So good. Brian, oh, he has another thing coming. Because I'm putting so much of the Father in him. That's Sharon. Oh, just you wait to see how much she looks like her papa. And Darren, don't even get me started on Darren. (laughs) Just don't. I'm going to fill him with so much of the goodness of the Father that he doesn't even know what to do with it. I'm going to surprise him how much he actually looks like his dad. And that's the thing. He's our dad. There's a lot of people who struggle with their relationships with their father. And they don't know what to do or how to approach this idea of God being our father. Yes, we have earthly fathers, and by no means do we want to discredit their work or their influence in our lives. 
but we need to acknowledge who we originally and eternally belong to. When my wife and I were candidating for Airdrie Lions Church, I remember sitting down at a restaurant, and Pastor Nathan, he, he said, I want you to close your eyes and just imagine that you're, you're uh, with a father. What is the father saying to you? I, I thought, well, that's kind of an interesting question. And like immediately, I had this image, I was sitting on the father's lap. And he's just like, shh, you're good. You're so good. It's this place of rest. Wow. We originally and eternally belong to our father. And he wants you. He wants the fullness of you. He wants you the way that he intended you to be. Back in June, I had this incredibly intimate moment with the Father. Personally, working hard to care for my soul, I had a number of questions for God, some that were very easy, I think, and some that were very forward of me to be asking. And this was the one that was at the forefront of my mind. God, why did you make me so emotional? If you know me at all, it's pretty easy for me to start tearing up to feel deeply for others. If someone else is crying, seconds, and there's usually tears in my eyes. But this often bugged me. It's, it's often bugged me for a long time because, I mean, the world standard of a man is to keep yourself together and be strong. Okay. And while that's good and that's true, it's not always God's definition. As I asked him this, I heard a response so incredibly quickly. I'm talking like seconds, and he said, Ben, you experienced this because you asked for the Father's heart. Oh, I lost it. I was, completely, I was completely wrecked. I was wrecked by the realization that my papa was giving me the very thing that I was asking for, that I desperately desired. But, but that's the thing. Do we see God as a distant and far-off creator of the universe who has limited interest in us? And in our lives? Or do we allow our faith to be deeply relational with him? Where we embrace our true identities as sons and daughters. This is the very posture that David takes in the beginning of the psalm. It is a you and me type posture that David has. You have searched me and you have known me. What David is doing here from the very beginning is acknowledging the father relationship that he's entered into with God. God is not a far-off, distant God. Proverbs 14.26 says, In the fear of the Lord, there is a strong confidence, and his children will take a place of refuge. Isaiah 43, verses 6 to 7, it says, I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name. Everyone who has been called by my name. Whom I have created for my glory, God says. Whom I have formed him, yes, I have made him. So what are we supposed to do with this? That's big. Are we supposed to just accept it as more knowledge? Maybe in part. Is it simply to be a kind word that makes us temporarily feel good? Not at all. So I, I suggest it actually needs to 
throw us into a place of action. We need to submit ourselves to God. Now, when we think of the word submit, we often think of the word submissive, which has connotations of being imposed obedience or it's force. That's not what God is asking. That's not what I am advocating for. I'm saying submit. To submit ourselves to one another, to submit ourselves to God, is actually to stop. Stop it. Stop and accept. Accept who God is. Accept who he is. Accept who he says we are as sons and daughters. Accept the identity that he has given us. Accept how God sees you. Because you are never going to change his perspective. David understood this, and so must we. Why, you ask? Well, David was the author of Psalm 139, but Jesus is the finisher. When God sent his son coming in human form, it was a wild declaration of his pursuit of his glory, coming after what he made, finding those who have ran away. It's a declaration in the pursuit of his glory over his creation and for his children. It is the world's greatest love story. You need to remember that God loves you. Just as I need to remember that he loves me and he will not stop loving me. He can't stop loving me because it actually goes against his nature to remove his love from his children. It goes against God's nature to remove his love from his children because we are image bearers. Go back to Genesis 1, 26, 27. When God says we made them in our image, in male and female, we made them. When we, humanity, entered into sin, he did not stop creating humanity in his image. The devastation of sin brought consequences with it, but it did not remove the love of the Father. It did not remove the love of the Creator. God likes you. Nay, I say God loves you so much, more than you can even comprehend. So do the hard work in your own lives to understand the love that He has for you, to understand how God sees you, to understand the identity that God gave you so that you can know yourself and love yourself and make his love known to others. God loves you beyond all measure. John 6, verse 37, this is Jesus speaking. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, by no means I will cast them out. By no means I will cast them out. Verses 17 and 18 of Psalm 139. It says, How precious are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Now, this is a really fun image. It's as if David's saying, Hey, you know what? God says he has lots of good things to say about me. So I'm going to start counting them. And yet, they become too numerous for David. It's almost as if it's like, God, this is, there's too much? 
There's too much. I can't even begin to attain it. It's, it's too grand. And it actually becomes draining to David how many precious thoughts the father has for him. So many precious thoughts that it actually leads him to a place where he falls asleep. But he awakes from his sleep and God is still there telling him how much that he is dearly loved. You are a son. You are a daughter. You are confident. I give you my courage. I give you my bravery. I give you my gentleness. Because you are your daddy's child. The number of precious thoughts only pile on higher and higher and higher. The thoughts that the Father has for David are the thoughts that he has for us. And they're made full in Jesus. Because in Jesus, James chapter 1, verse 18 says, We are the first fruits of creation. 2 Timothy 1.9, we are called by God. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, we are partakers of his divine nature. Ephesians 2.19, we are our fellow citizens with the saints and the household of God. Romans 8, chapter, or Romans 8.2, we are freed from the law of sin and death. Colossians 1.12, you are qualified to share in his inheritance. And 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 4, I am chosen. You are chosen. So this is a declaration, church. You need to stand up and live in your sonship and your daughtership. God has called you to places that he desperately desires to, to take you. We're going to sing a song, but at the end, I'm inviting everyone who needs prayer for a fresh revelation of the Father. Maybe you've never seen yourself the way that God does, and you need that today. Maybe you need healing. There'll be people up here praying. But let's sing together and celebrate who God is, who he says we are.